This Dharma Talk is brought to you by the Chicago Zen Meditation Community. Learn about us and our teacher, Miyoshi Thompson, at zenchicago.org. Mary and I have been away a couple of weeks. Um, thanks to those who kept the sitting going while we were away. It's great. I really appreciate it. We were on vacation and we were in France. And uh, you'll be happy to know that in France, Zen is everywhere. <laughs> Not that everybody's doing Zazen. In fact, nobody's doing Zazen in France. We, we know a French family and uh, we were visiting with them and in their living room they have a Zafu. So I said, oh, we have a Zafu. He said, yeah, we've got to try that one of these days. <laughs> <laughs> their English was very good. Um, so, it's not Zen practice that's everywhere, it's Zen in advertising that's everywhere. Um, I sent some people uh, some pictures of all the advertising of Zen. There was a clothing store named Zen Ethic. There was another clothing store just named Zazen. Uh, there was a tanning salon named Bronze and Zen. Uh, in the grocery store, there was a prepackaged smoked salmon salad that said, Zen, let's stay Zen, <laughs> in French. And the stores, in the airports and train station, there's a chain of stores called Relay, R-E-L-A-Y. And uh, in English, above the, the doors to all these stores, it says, um, uh, be happy, be curious, be zen, and be relay. Whatever that means. As if a happy and curious zen customer would be exactly what their business was looking for. Now I have no problem with characterizing zen people as happy and curious. I think that's great. But Zen and being a customer really don't go all that well together. <laughs> because, you know, Zen we arise out of Buddhist tradition. And Buddhist tradition is to notice that there are certain things that cause suffering. One of the things that causes suffering is craving. In uh, Pali, the original language, it's called the tanha. And it, it means uh, actually thirst, or sometimes it's translated as greed. And another thing that causes suffering, Buddha taught, is clinging. Uh, in Pali, it's upadana. Often translated as clinging or grasping. Actually, the word means fuel, like a log would be fuel for a fire. And so it's like saying, this is the fuel that sustains suffering. <coughs> and, and these two things and other things were said to lead to dukkha, which means, it's often translated as suffering, it means dissatisfaction. It's really true. If we're craving something, or if we're clinging to something, or dissatisfied. 
If we're craving, we're dissatisfied because we, have, we don't have something we want. And if we're clinging, we're dissatisfied because we might lose something we have. And at a really practical level, the path that leads to the end of suffering, which is Buddha taught, what Buddha taught, will not really encourage these activities, clinging, craving. So that's how they talked about it in early Buddhism. Uh, in our Mahayana tradition, the kind of later development of Buddhism, we might not emphasize this in exactly this way, but the spirit is there. We maybe speak a little bit more in the positive. So we talk about the importance of um, cultivating dana, uh, or the practice of giving, generosity. If you're going to engage in giving, clinging doesn't work all that well. So it's a kind of an antidote. Um, we have other practices, loving kindness, for instance. The practice of sympathetic joy, which is the practice of extending our joy to others uh, when they're doing well. Even you know, if it doesn't make us feel good that somebody else is doing better than we are, we extend that sympathetic joy. So there's kind of a generosity, there's a non-clinging that runs through many, I would have to say all Buddhist practices. So, you know, being a customer and being Zen, not exactly the same. Uh, and then we have the, the wisdom tradition that, that is our heritage. And we have the wisdom of Prajnaparamita. The sutra we chanted, the Heart Sutra, is about Prajnaparamita, the perfection of wisdom. And this is the wisdom of interconnectedness, the way everything is so embedded in everything else, it's really impossible to uh, have things in the world that are completely separate from other things. And we call this insight the insight into the emptiness of all phenomena. We chanted that about emptiness. So we should say maybe a little bit about what this means, emptiness. Emptiness means uh, that nothing is separate from anything else. Nothing is permanent and lasting. We say it's empty of an independent, separate self. But nothing has uh, an autonomous existence. But everything depends on the arising of everything else. And so things are not just a single thing, but everything is the way the whole universe comes together in this moment. So, uh, you know, the paper in front of me uh, is the way trees and sunlight and rain and soil are manifesting right here. That everything is full of everything else. And so if you think about it, what emptiness means is that everything is always here. Because each thing in front of us, ourselves included, are the embodiment of how the whole universe comes together. 
And so one of the pieces of wisdom that comes out of Zen practice is realization that nothing is lacking. Everything is right here. And nothing is superfluous. There's nothing that could be removed either. Everything has an essential uh, place in, in the whole. And this is what was taught uh, early in our Zen tradition. There was a great teacher in China. His name was Yunyan. And he had a student, Dongshan, who was the founder of our school, uh, Soto Zen School in, in China. And uh, Dongshan had asked Yunyan, well, what is the essence of your dharma, of your teaching? And Yunyan's answer was, just this is it. Nothing is lacking. And nothing is extra. Just this, he said. And so, that doesn't go along with uh, craving either very well. It's really the way we express that justice is we bring acceptance, willingness, openness to each experience. We do this in zazen, whatever comes up. We do this in our, you know, daily life. I was talking to a psychologist friend of mine, and he was telling me today about um, ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. Ketamine is a like a powerful drug that uh, uh, it's kind of psychedelic, as I understand. So, he, you know, it's a powerful drug, and he says that before they start a course in ketamine-assisted therapy, they kind of coach patients about, okay, how to handle this drug. And they say, the way to handle it is don't fight it. Accept it. Let it happen. Move through it. And I thought, wow, that's the way I want to walk down the street. Not with ketamine, but with that attitude of being willing to have this whole experience, whatever it is. If it's the car noises or the sunny day or whatever it is, being open to that. We could call it zazen-assisted psychotherapy. <laughs> because that's what our zazen practice is. It's really being open to whatever arises right now. It might be the temperature of the room, it's hot. Or it might be the sound of the air conditioner, it's boring. Or, or whatever it is, like it or not, we're open to it. We're even open to the feelings of liking and disliking. <coughs> it's a challenge we could all take up, is to go through life with that attitude of being willing. The attitude of just this is it. This is our life. And that approach to life does not make for a good consumer. What makes for a good consumer is the idea, there's never enough. That makes for a good consumer. You know, the, you can never be too rich or too thin. That makes for a good consumer. Right? 
being a good consumer depends heavily, uh, heavily on a pretty high level of dissatisfaction. Or what we, what Buddha taught as dukkha, or suffering. But I don't think this is really the natural state of things, this kind of dissatisfaction. If, if you walk out into the natural world, maybe a corner of a park or a forest preserve, or by the lake, when there's not a lot of movement around, not a lot of people around, and just sit and watch what's happening. Um, you see that the natural world embodies the wisdom of nothing is lacking. That wisdom of lacking nothing does not fuel craving, and it does not fuel clinging. Even if we have desires, they're not out of place. They're exactly where they belong. In our meditation practice, uh, I'm sorry, I'm talking about the natural world. So, and in the natural world, you know, if you sit quietly with it, it's not doing a lot of striving. I don't know if, if, if trees yearn for things. Uh, they don't seem like they do. Um, trees seem to be kind of willing to be in the soil that they're in, to have the sunshine that they're in. Plants, you know, some plants are phototropic, you know, they turn towards the sun. But I don't know, do they get despondent if it's a cloudy day? I kind of think not. The natural world shows us something about patience about equanimity, about the willingness to have what's right here. And our meditation practice and our other practices in Zen are meant to help us to realize this, this wisdom. Our practice emerges out of a tradition of this, this practice, this practice of non-striving, non-clinging. So our Zazen is, you know, an excellent example of that. Uh, the thing that we're not trying to do in Zazen is try to have any particular experience. Zazen is being upright and being willing to have whatever Some people get the idea that Zen practice can be kind of detached. I don't think that's true. In fact, I think it's like closer to complete engagement because there's a willingness to be with whatever is here, not to judge and say, oh, I don't want this, it's too bright in this room or whatever, you know, just to be with whatever is here. Uh, our great teacher Dogen described our practice this way. He said, the character of this school 
is simply devotion to sitting, total engagement in immobile sitting. So that doesn't sound like um, being detached to me. Devotion and total engagement are not detachment words, they're involvement words. Total engagement in immobile sitting is how we describe ourselves in. And immobile sitting means we're not roaming around looking for anything else. Of course, physically, you know, we don't get up and walk around the room and check things out. But psychologically, too, we're not looking for something in particular. We don't start our zazen with the, uh, the thought, okay, well, today in this zazen, I'm going to think about X, Y, Z, you know, whatever it is. We don't start zazen that way because it's not a practice of acquiring anything. It's not a practice, in fact, it's not even a practice that we personally direct. In our zazen, we might certainly turn towards something that shows up, anything that shows up in our experience. But usually, it's more greeting what's here rather than seeking or clinging to what's here. We certainly, in zazen, refrain from clinging to all the many trains of thought that are offered to us by our minds while we're, while we're sitting. Uh, but, again, it's more um, allowing these trains of thoughts to fade away rather than pushing them away or getting rid of them. Uh, the Japanese teacher Uchiyama described the process of Zazen as a process of opening the hand of thought. It's a nice modern metaphor that kind of echoes that, that ancient teaching about clinging. In our practice, we open the hand of thought rather than grasp something. And it's important to keep in mind that our zazen is not a practice of eliminating cravings or eliminating desires. I'll tell you a secret. It's very hard to fulfill the desire to have no desires. <laughs> right? You, it just doesn't work. You can't because you're being driven by desire in that case. So we have to be willing to have our desire, to have our craving, to have, you know, all of the human things that we have. But on the cushion, we hold them lightly. And we don't allow them to interfere with us sitting upright and facing justice. Our zazen doesn't get into striving. It doesn't even get into striving for more ease or less discomfort, really. Now, upright sitting is a dynamic process. It's not like we take a position and then nothing moves for, you know, 30 minutes or 40 minutes. No, there's always adjustment that happens in zazen. But it's a funny kind of adjustment. It's an adjustment that maintains our upright posture. It's not an adjustment that says, oh, I feel like I would rather, uh, you know, lay down than sit up. It's not an adjustment that 
uh, is particularly oriented even towards reducing discomfort in zazen, especially early in our zazen practice, a certain amount of discomfort is kind of expected. We're not used to sitting upright. And so our bodies have to have the practice of doing that. And sometimes, you know, muscles fatigue and it's not so comfortable. But in zazen, we, we might adjust a posture because, you know, we want to be in this posture, the upright sitting. And I don't mean, you know, how your legs are crossed, you could be sitting on a chair. That, that's not the, uh, the issue. But we want to take this upright posture in whatever way our bodies will do it. But taking that posture is not personal. This is the posture, this is the practice that has been handed down to us from teacher to teacher to teacher to teacher, all the way back to Shakyamuni Buddha. It's not personal to sit zazen. It's a tradition that we maintain, and we maintain it on its own terms. So if we find ourselves leaning in zazen, we, we restore this open, upright posture that we've inherited. But it's not a personal thing. It's just bringing ourselves into this, this position of being open to whatever arises. This is the form that was handed down to us. And this is the form that we uphold in our practice. So it's not really personal. There is a form for our practice, but I want to caution you about one thing. Sometimes when we think there's a way to do things, then we start criticizing ourselves for not doing it exactly right. right? Really, this is not what you want to get into in your zazen. Self-criticism is rarely helpful in your zazen. It's just really a personal involvement then. We take on this traditional practice um, and we just, as best we can, embody this tradition. Our backs may hurt, our knees may hurt, anything could happen in Zazen. Our brains might hurt. But really, it's not our fault. We, we don't take responsibility for it. It's just something that's happening. Just if we were on a boat, there would be wind, and there would be waves and currents, and we wouldn't take responsibility for that, even if it pushed us in this direction or that. But, but what we would do is we would steer in the direction we want to go. And that's what Zazen is like. It's not criticizing ourselves, oh, my, my knee should be more flexible by now, or my back shouldn't hurt anymore. It's it's just taking ourselves where we are and maybe steering in the direction of upright posture. And that's really a practice we take in our lives. You know, the practice of emptiness, the wisdom of non-self, really is a wisdom that says there are huge forces in the world 
that go well beyond our individual selves. And we can't take responsibility for them. You know, I've heard that there's some anger in the world. Sometimes that anger filters through me, right? It filters through me because of experiences I've had or whatever. Is that my anger? Well, I mean, it, we tradition we, you know, habitually say yes, but maybe not. There's an anger that has been in human life since the beginning, and it finds its expression in each of us every once in a while. Do we blame ourselves for it? Well, not that helpful. Do we try to steer in a different direction? Yes. That's what's helpful. So we steer in the direction of being willing, being open. Uh, the teacher I was talking about, Dogen, described our Zazen as body and mind dropping away. And he didn't mean body and mind disappear, but he meant that Zazen is not personal. The personal is not what is embodied in Zazen. So it's an engagement, our, our practice, total engagement in a mobile sitting is an engagement, but not an engagement on a personal level, not an engagement on an ego level, not an engagement that is trying to acquire something. The relay stores in Charles de Gaulle Air Airport, right? Uh, they certainly want you to engage with them, but what they want you to engage is your greed, right? Your craving, your desire. Our engagement not so much in personal gain, but engagement in the practice of the way, this way that's been handed down to us. And the way is not a big advocate of egos. It's just not a big fan of that. things I'm saying is that we take our practice outside of the realm of personal, of ego-driven, and we allow it to be as it is in the tradition that it comes from. And that can be a tremendous help to practice to do that, because if we're just driven by the personal in our practice, well, if we didn't have such a good period of zazen, we might not want to go back to we're just driven by the personal in our practice, we might think, oh, I think I'd rather have an extra cup of coffee rather than sit this morning. The personal is not always our friend when it comes to practice, right? This total engagement in immobile sitting, this devotion to sitting, is, is really a deep engagement in something that goes beyond the personal and a willingness to uphold. Um, 
Now there are some Zen sayings that really do make it sound like Zen is a detached. Maybe one of the famous ones, most famous ones, is uh, uh, attaining the way is not difficult. Simply avoid picking and choosing. So this was the third ancestor in China, famous teaching. Meaning, avoid personal preferences, right? Avoid picking and choosing. Well, that sounds like um, it's detached. <coughs> but uh, I don't think so. I was talking about those phototropic plants. They turn towards the sun. Do they seek out sunny days and reject cloudy days? No, I don't think so. It's just their nature to turn towards the sun. And I think in our practice we, have, we, we do well if we can find that. Really, it is our nature to be fully engaged in our lives. Not just the life that is, you know, the qualities that we want, but the whole life. So that's not picking and choosing. It's just doing uh, what is really real for us. Um, the teacher Doga, the Japanese teacher, used the example. He said, uh, um, disdaining picking and choosing is like a Garuda. A Garuda was a big predatory bird in mythology. Not eating anything but dragons. So these, these big birds were said to prey on dragons and nothing else. They only ate dragons. Is it picking and choosing for the Garuda to eat a dragon? No, it's just what Garudas do. <laughs> right? Is it picking and choosing for, for the flower to turn towards the sun? No. It's just what flowers do. Is it picking and choosing for people of the way to sit in Zazen? No. That's just what people of the way do. So what I'm saying is that we find um, something that's very deeply authentic in us, but that's not all that personal. You know, something that's deeply authentic in the sense that we really resonate with this Buddha's way. And we try to embody it in our lives. We try to be present in a way that's not clinging, and it's not craving, but is willing to have this, just this. So that doesn't necessarily make us great consumers. It doesn't make us great anything, it just makes us ordinary. Just makes us real people. Uh, been talking about zazen from a number of viewpoints, but uh, let me ask people to raise any questions or make any comments that that you want. Questions about your own zazen practice or or what I've been talking about? Anything? I think one thing that you were hitting on, I think it was uh, the impression that like, Zazen is disconnected. Yeah. 
And I've heard that uh, often from uh, friends and stuff like that. And he's in a sense, like it is, because it's like there is a little bit of um, <coughs> so much of what's perceived to be connected mm -hmm. revolves around consumerism itself. Mm -hmm. Right, so it's like gonna go get fancy food and dinners and all this stuff. Um, but I think when you start sitting, at least for me, the impression when I started sitting, it's not that I became disconnected. I realized how disconnected I actually was. Oh, really? Yeah. Mm. Huh. Yeah, because then it's just all of the stuff. Right, was just uh, I don't know, <coughs> creating this false illusion of. Uh, having a life oh, or having like these you know so it just but it came from a place where I was actually not really rooted or connected in anything and so it kind of took that place uh -huh. Uh -huh. so it's just interesting so for me actually Zazen helped me realize just how disconnected yeah that's I interesting was. and then maybe from the outside in Hmm. You're like, oh, like you're disconnected. But I'm like, no, I'm actually now connected. Where before, I wasn't. You know, it makes me think uh, craving and clinging might be our attempt to to quiet the feelings of being disconnected that we have. Yeah, yeah actually, that's it. You know, yeah. and, and it really might be, oh, I feel kind of lonely. Let me go to the relay store and get whatever, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Happiness and curiosity and Zen. Uh, or maybe if I buy this, if I buy this fancy shirt, people will like me more, and I won't be lonely. I don't know. Exactly. I, you know, or however. Exactly. That. Well, you have pretty good shirts. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's a problem. <laughs> no. Right. Exactly. Let me let me acquire so I don't feel lonely. Right. But really, in Zazen, if we can sell that a bit and see, we can see a deeper connection than any acquisition. Not only that, when we practice Zazen, we tend to become like better listeners. <laughs> we tend to become like less angry, you know? And Maybe our relationships actually do get better <laughs> as a result of that. that. That's always a possibility. Uh, anyone else have questions or thoughts? Yeah. So I was, um, I've been thinking about uh, nothing is lacking, nothing yeah. is extra. Um, I really like that okay. um, conception, but it's sort of at war with daily life as a writer and editor and teacher. Oh. Almost always I'm being asked to identify <laughs> what's missing. Oh, yeah, sure. Or what's <laughs> extra, especially in writing, yeah. What's uh -huh. extra? Yeah. You know, just this afternoon I cut out half of a chapter. <laughs> so so I'm, I'm, I'm sort of trying to absorb that lesson, you know, in, in terms of daily life. And I think for, for me, sitting actually is a way of figuring out on a deeper level that acceptance of nothing is missing, nothing is extra, 
but actually in the process of doing that, I'm jettisoning things, jettisoning things all the time, including taking that half hour in the morning to find my breath uh -huh. and rediscover who I am. Uh -huh. That's separate from some of those cravings that you talked about. Tell me what you were meaning about jettisoning. You Jet uh, letting it go. Letting go. Recognizing yeah. it, letting it go. Okay, gotcha. Sort of, um, I think it's the Suzuki Roshi talks about swinging door in mind. Mm -hmm. So it's not holding off the cravings and the rest of it. It's sort of saying, oh yeah, there's that again. Mm -hmm. And letting it go letting it. with the breath. So, I don't know. Well, that's what I was talking about, about Ujjama's teaching, mm -hmm. opening the hand of thought. Letting go, non-grasping, non-clinging. So I was never a consumer of uh, the same way you talk about it, but uh, I was a, uh, I did seek out my own things that I liked that I guess you could say I consumed. Like when I was a kid, I loved picking up hobbies. I like learned how to juggle. Oh. We all laugh about that, it's funny. Or I learned how to uh, do ventriloquism when I was like 10. I was like, yeah, I'd be the best at it. I'd be the, be the best at it. When I was older, I didn't like weightlifting or uh, you know, like activities in school. It was always like a pursuit of this attribute. Uh -huh. I wanted to get better at this attribute. And when I discovered Zen, of course they tell you not to seek anything out. <laughs> but but. I, was, I was gonna be like the best. Okay. <laughs> For sure. Uh -huh. And what I found was there was like the anti-attribute. It was the what? Like the anti- The anti- antidote. Yeah, yeah. The anti yeah. Like the more I did it, uh, the less I wanted from other things. I felt like I could enjoy them again. Oh. And uh, it, was, it was really strange because I, uh, I still, of course I still wanted to be like good at Zen, but the more I wanted to be good at Zen, the less I actually wanted to be good at it. The more I practiced it, the more I, uh, uh -huh. I was just, I stopped caring about how I sat, or I didn't have to do this whole ritual of stretching beforehand, or I didn't need to, to get things like just right, got to do this in after the coffee, yeah. after the stretching, uh -huh. I like the candle first, just the right seat. The more I did it, the more I was like, I don't really care. Like it's, yeah. it's just, it's just all just sit. I'll just do it. Yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. so it doesn't have to be the perfect sitting. Right. All it has yeah. to be is upright. You just have to just have to do it. Yeah. 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 So it was really it was the one attribute to ruin them all. Very cool. Thanks for sharing that. Sure. Other comments or questions anybody wants to raise? I really liked your comment on how emptiness allows for something to be full of everything. Mm -hmm. And that made me think about um, a certain passage in the Tao Te Ching where they discuss how it's not the full part of something that we use, but the empty part. How with a bowl, for instance, or with a cup, do you use the empty inside? Or with a house, you live inside the empty that's part. That's funny. Mm -hmm. And so I was just thinking about those two concepts and kind of bringing them together. That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, the, uh, the 
emptiness that we uh, we encounter every moment in our lives is really um, like you're saying it's it's the aspect of things that we really connect with we really connect with the emptiness of the cup I mean it's empty in a physical sense but we also really connect with the emptiness of the cup in that more uh, philosophical sense right we connect with the way everything has kind of the the importance and the value of everything else. If we can do that, then you know everything is then sacred, right? There's there's nothing that's defiled. So everything becomes a uh, um, a place to practice, an object to practice. Thanks. We should stop for tonight. <coughs> Thanks for your discussion. <laughs> <laughs>